Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and as you can hear, I've got a bit of a cold, but there you go. You're listening to My Time Capsule, where I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life that they would pick to put into a time capsule. Four things that they cherish and want to preserve or see again, and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. In fact, that they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My special guest in this episode is one of the most influential men in the development of the world of sound in drama, the brilliant Dirk Maggs, who has, over the years, given us some of the greatest audio productions ever made, many of which he's written or adapted as audio works himself. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? That's enough, isn't it, really? Well, OK, I'll go on. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, Superman, Batman the Dark Knight, The Amazing Spider-Man, Independence Day UK, An American Werewolf in London, Aliens, The X-Files with the original TV stars David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, Stephen Baxter's Voyage, and his incredible work with Neil Gaiman, including Neverwhere, Neil Gaiman's and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens, Stardust, Anansi Boys, and the unforgettable Sandman series, turning the Sandman comic book series into audio dramas, with Neil Gaiman as narrator and cast members including James McAvoy, Michael Sheen, Riz Ahmed, Andy Serkis, Brian Cox, David Tennant, Bill Nye and Samantha Morton, amongst many others. And I'm not at all pissed off that every time Dirk has asked me to be in it, I've been unavailable. <laughs> Anyway, Dirk was the audio director for the animated Mr. Bean TV series starring Rowan Atkinson and the full-length animated film of The Magic Roundabout starring Robbie Williams, Kylie Minogue, Jim Broadbent, Ray Winston and Joanna Lumley. 
Dirk began his career at the BBC, where he eventually produced such shows as The News Hudlines, The Marx Brothers Update, Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, The Russ Abbott Show, The 50th Anniversary Goon Show, and several shows with a very young Johnny Vegas. He's got a good eye, has Dirk. In fact, Dirk has changed the way we make and listen to audio dramas. So will that be what he chooses to put in his time capsule? Or are other things more important to him? Let's find out as we listen to Dirk Mag's Time Capsule. When do you think about it, Dirk? When do you think about when you first started doing what you do? You've been uh, possibly one of the greatest innovators in sound. Well, in the world, I think. Uh, that's lovely of you. Neil Gaiman has taught me to be gracious about accepting compliments. So I've I've learned to smile and be grateful, which I which I am. It's also ironic because when I on my first day at the BBC on the nineteenth of July, nineteen seventy eight, on course nineteen A in the Langham, where we were training to be studio managers, yeah. While you were over the road in sixteen Langham Street, uh, laughing with Jeffrey Perkins over something or another, <laughs> I said to everybody, "This, I, I, I'm not going to be in radio for long. Not for any longer than it takes me to get an attachment to television. I'm going to get into television, and then I'm going to get into film, and that was my thing. And the irony is." Out of all the people I was with who went on to anything apart from uh, being a studio manager, almost all of them went to television. So (laughs) Graham Stewart, who's on my course, is now producing Graham Norton's show. Yeah. A lovely guy called Tony Boyle went off to work uh, for somewhere else, Sky, Channel 4, whatever it is. Um, I'm the one who ended up back in radio because it was a choice because I, I, I realized how much I loved sound and I, I realized by doing the other things that I thought I wanted to do because I went into a I worked in a, a film studio in Toronto my dad's second cousin was a film producer in Toronto right and in 1979 I went and I gophered on a film set with Donald Sutherland it was called Nothing Personal it's uh, disappeared without trace I think <laughs> But it was, they, you know, it was Donald Sutherland. He was very nice. And I was gophering and uh, uh, it was, I was so bored. I was so bored. Um, I did learn to load a Panavision magazine. That is a, <laughs> not a skill in demand. But, uh, not anymore, no. <laughs> yeah. But no, it was, so that kind of, oh, this is really, because I, I made films as a, as a kid in, in school. I loved making mm. films. And then um, I, I did telly. I did 18 months in telly. I worked in network and I was thinking, well, if I can get out of network directing and making trailers, I could get into, maybe I get in the comedy department or whatever it is. But of yeah. course, still a bit of the old Oxbridge mafia in that area in those days in the early Mm -hmm. 80s Mm. wasn't going to do that and also just telecenter and i know people love telecenter mike and i know you'll have loads of happy memories of working there but for me it was a slightly strange place where lots of people wandering around in sort of carpet slippers and cardigans and (laughs) it was just on medication yeah yeah well you know not putting it down at all Uh, i know that i I love you know i love bbc tv anyway i I went back to radio and um and you know i was playing in bands as well you know there was that going on i met leslie Mm. and so i had lots going on outside so i was happy to be a studio manager and just make programs and then go home at the end of the day with nothing to think about but i just i I just realized what fun it was making pictures and sound it sort of worked that way yeah yeah it's extraordinary and uh now 
everybody's doing it. But as you say, you can now do it instead of having to go in and use those incredibly expensive <laughs> equipment that you were using. You can now do it at home. It's amazing. Well, I, I remember when I said to uh, Jonathan James Moore, who you'll remember fondly. Mm, I do. Love yeah, you, our boss at yeah. Radio Light Entertainment. I said, Jonathan, oh, you know, I'd like to edit at home, Jonathan. I don't want to have to go down to the channel and edit there. And he said, well, you'll, you'll have to talk to, uh, go to the uh, uh, supplies department and uh, <laughs> get a portable, a portable machine. Well, I went to get a portable machine. This thing was the size of a fridge. And I, I, I had to carry it on the train to Waterloo, home to Winchester. And I got it home, and it's just a quarter-inch editing machine. It's not. Incredible. It's nothing. You no. know, but this was just about three years before you could, you know, edit on a Mac. And of course, you can't tell the youngsters, can you? <laughs> how how it was, you know, the speed with which people could cut tape yeah. with a razor blade yeah. and put it back together again was astonishing. It was amazing, and and actually, I do remember. Because, of course, that was my life for a long time in, in yeah. Bush House. One night we were doing a – there was a late-breaking item on the African news or something like this. Mm. And um, we had a 20-minute kind of package to drop into a half-hour program. And we literally finished recording it the minute before we went on air. So I had to edit it while the first half was going out. I was editing the second half, literally just <laughs> oh chop God. it. And I hear, remember the stories of Jeffrey running around with the tapes for hitchhikers to get them to con in time. Yes, yeah. And, and actually the BBC was full of people running around in corridors trailing bits of tape because <laughs> that, was, that was the kind of the way, it was entirely destructive editing. And how many times did you stand a tape machine and realise you were standing on the damn clip you needed or the next... <laughs> I used to, when we did the news headlines, I used to find I was standing on the next sketch. I thought I'd put it safely to one side. Because <laughs> people forget yeah. that you did all that. But maybe we should talk yeah. about the things you want to put in a time capsule yeah. and see if any of these come up. Oh, they'll come up. I'm sure they will. This is a nightmare podcast. Is it? Yeah. It's not that I've been trying to be a stranger because you've been very kindly asking me to take part. But seriously... I don't know how anyone does Desert Island Discs or My Time Capsule because it's impossible. But you're an editor. You're able to edit your own life. I'm Come good on. at editing everything but my life. That's the one <laughs> truly haphazard. I'm not going to hold you to it. <laughs> Thank you. It's funny. I, I, I started by writing down, I was thinking, can I put metaphysical notions in this time capsule? <laughs> or you would. Or maybe it should be sound effects. Oh, that's brilliant. Or should it be good advice people have given me? So in the end, I've written a list and mm. I just thought, I'm just going to pick these really weird things and just, you know, well, Mike can just tell me to, we'll move on now, Dirk. Yeah, we'll get off your Veruca now, Dirk. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know where it's going to take us. I love it when it starts out as something that to me seems completely insignificant. Yeah. And then once it's explained to me why it's important, they always are important. Yes, that's true, actually. Yeah, OK, well... Um... OK, go on then. Let's have a look at number one. <laughs> well, number one, you see, because I was going to say the letter that got me in the BBC because uh -huh. that was kind of a big moment for me. And then I thought, well, I'm always talking about the job, so maybe I shouldn't do that. But on the other hand, you see... I left teacher training college, which is what King Alfred's Winchester was when I left here. Mm. Uh, I, and I thought I wanted to be an actor. And if I couldn't be an actor, then I'd back it up by teaching. And at King Alfred's, which was a lovely college with a fully equipped theatre, which is really why I came, because mm. you, know, you go in and think, oh, you can play here. <laughs> um, 
But as soon as I got to Winchester and, and to King Alfred's um, and did a bit of teaching practice and did a couple of plays, I realised that I was a really indifferent actor and I was an even worse teacher. Uh, that, I think I've got better since. But having said all of that, you know, it was a touch and go thing and, and my finals exams. And what I did all the time was I took part in um, productions because we had mm. the Irving Club for, for drama and we had the Musical Comedy Society. So we did, you know, everything from The Boyfriend to Fiddler on the Roof in one and then we did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in the other, you know. So we, we did a lot of stuff. So I got better at acting, but, you know, not in a way that I thought I could ever make a living. But mm. the thing was... I was spending so much time doing extracurricular activities in the theatre or in the bar <laughs> or in the pubs of Winchester that I wasn't really doing the work. The drama was great, but the education part, mm. So for my education final, I got up at five that morning and crammed <laughs> Piaget's theorem about child development. And thank God a question came up on Piaget. So I scraped out with a degree. Mm. A two-two. I don't know. I don't even think it was a two-two. But whatever it was, it was a degree. But then I had no idea what to do. And someone who was in the year above me, our band were going to play the Leavers Ball, which was also our Leavers Ball. Mm. And we were doing, you know, a wide variety of terrible covers, like you do. <laughs> but while we were rehearsing in the Great Hall, a lovely lady called Sarah Giles Harling, who's now a BBC Vision mixer. Mm. but was then an ex-drama student, walked in and, oh, Sarah, where have you been? I thought you'd left, and she had left, and um, she was working at the BBC. I said, how did you get in? <laughs> because I was told by the lecturer who was, you know, ostensibly my career's advisor, you'll never get in the BBC, it's a closed shop, forget it. And it was. It was an enclave full of Oxbridge lads who had all been basically told, oh, come and work for Johnny. You know, yeah, look yes, after you. yes, mm. yes. It was the equivalent of the, you know, the ones who'd had a good war a generation before, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Peter yeah. Eaton and that lot. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I, she said, I was a studio manager. And, and I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, I operate tape machines. I said, well, I play with tape machines. I do that stuff. Anyway, applied, went in and got the interview. And, and the thing is, I honestly don't think I would get a job at the BBC now, Mike, because it's all about saying the right thing, you know, ticking the right boxes in your application. It's um, this whole HR thing, you know, that mm -hmm. goes on these days. In those days, it was sort of, come on, old boy, sit down right now. Now, uh, <clears throat> oh, you do a bit of drama, Johnny Good. Oh, you've done a bit of hospital radio, very good. Um, <laughs> what newspaper do you read? And I'm looking around the room and he's got a Daily Mail on a chair. Ah, uh, Daily Mail. And um, a week or so later, letter comes through offering me a... A place on the course as a trainee studio manager. Please report to the Langham, 10 in the morning, 19th of July, 1978. But the thing is, all the way going in, and this is the thing that do we, it dogs all of us, is the imposter syndrome. And you, you're going in and you walk up. And to me, Broadcasting House, that great ship-like structure built in the early 1930s, I used to see that in old copies of, like, the London Illustrated News um, in sort of photogravure, mm -hmm. in that sort of that art technique that makes things look enormous and the little motor cars running outside look tiny when they were motor cars. <laughs> so I'd never actually seen it in the flesh. And there this thing is. And I'm going to be working there? Am I? Come on. I've mm. got, I can't be doing that. But anyway, you know, went in, managed to get through the first six months when they give you a test. Mm. 
Don't ask me what Ohm's law is, but I managed to cram it just for that one question. <laughs> and then became a studio manager working first at Broadcasting House, but then choosing to stay at Bush House, where World Service was then, mm. because that's where you got your hands on the gear more quickly. Yes, indeed. Um, it was a great place, wasn't it, Bush House? Yeah, lovely atmosphere. Good mm. food in the canteen as well. <laughs> yeah. And a very good choice to go to Bush House because Portland Place was deliberately designed, I think, in order that anybody who didn't know all the secrets got lost every time they went anywhere. It was impossible <laughs> to get around, wasn't it? Yes, very much so, especially in the sub-basement. Yes. <laughs> in fact, when I was producing Loose Ends with Ned for about six months in... Um, 1992, after the first time we were supposed to do Hitchhikers collapsed, mm. you know, Douglas asked me if I'd pick the reins up, um, having finished the last book, oh, and rang Jonathan and said, oh, don't do this Superman stuff, it sounds really filmic. Do you think he'd be interested in doing Hitchhikers? And I was round at the door of 22 Duncan Terrace before he'd hung up. <laughs> and <laughs> that was all going to happen, and then it didn't. And so they didn't know what to do with me, and Ian Guardhouse... Somehow I heard in the great format, I was free because I hadn't got anything like, I'd just given up hard lines and flywheel and all of that to go and do hitchhikers. Said, um, would Dirk like to do six months on loose ends? And I thought, oh, chance to work with Ned Sharon. Yes, lovely. please. Ned was lovely. Yeah. So I was producing and one week we had Douglas in to talk about um, Last Chance to See and we had Ranulph Fines in, the Polar Explorer. Right. So... Um, in the pub down at the George after the transmission because we were live on a Saturday morning and there's Ned. Mm. Um, Ranoff finds has gone off somewhere and there's Douglas and we're having the pork pie with the um, ketchup that Ned liked to give us. <laughs> after the, and um, Douglas had been asked on the programme why he found it so hard to write anything. And he said... You know, he'd said the usual thing about, you know, it's it's hard to do and which it was for him. I think it was it was literally um torture for, for Douglas to write because he had so much going on in his head. Mm. Anyway, he said I felt terrible about, you know, I was sitting there talking about how hard it was to write a book in a comfortable hotel room, and there's Ranulph Fines who's walked right across Antarctica <laughs> and lost three toes to frostbite. And I said, Douglas, you really don't have to worry because we had a frantic phone call from Ran Fines who'd got lost trying to find the loo in the basement of Broadcasting House. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd been him, if you'd been Ran Fines, would you ever have been able to leave a room without saying, I'm just going outside? I uh, maybe sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and what a man Douglas was. What great yeah. fun he was. Yeah. Uh, we're both very lucky to have known him, I think. God, yeah. And the weird thing is that, you know, Neil Gaiman and I are kind of were mentored by him in a weird way. Because right. he mentored Neil. Neil was a journalist when he first met Douglas. and I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, he was, I think he was interviewing him. Don't, uh, uh, if you're listening, Neil, and I've got that wrong, don't hit me. But um, <laughs> Douglas kind of said, well, why don't you write? If you want to write, write. Uh, which is, you know, typical. And similarly, you know, the fact that Douglas had listened to what I did and thought, you know, the chap might be able to hack it. That is typical of him, though. Actually. Yeah. He was very up on everything that was happening. He was very up as particularly on things that were innovative. So he would have, without doubt, listened to your thing because everybody was saying, have you heard this? It's, it's unbelievable. It sounds like people are moving around. It's incredible. Yeah. And I remember that reaction. I remember doing the first recording with you and, and thinking, where are the mics? 
They were all yeah. over the place. It was yeah. it was brilliant. It was a brilliant idea. And and now, of course, it's de rigueur. Everybody does it. But to come up with that idea, uh, that's a very Douglas thing. Well, it is a sort of inquiring mind in a way. I suppose mm. you know, it's it's sort of how can we do? How can we, there was definitely a moment. I would say actually, I'm going to put. I've put that BBC letter in. I'm going to put Douglas's phone call in. That's my second thing for the for the time capsule. Okay. Because that was a very big turning point really and he was very kind and patient with me and and we had some we jumped over some hoops to do that. But the thing was it was with Douglas that I first talked about doing stuff in um surround sound. Mm. Because I had developed this sort of movie style of of audio storytelling and I do remember and I've told this before so I'll be brief but I was in like H58 which was the light end channel where Barry if you remember Barry used to go and edit the programs right yes bless him <laughs> lovely Barry and um so I said listen mate could I have the key and have it overnight because I've got this super this thing this superman thing and I just want to I know it's already been mixed but I just don't think it's the soup's thick enough. I want to add a bit more, you know, corn flour <laughs> with the accent on corn, folks. And, uh, <laughs> and um, he said, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, mate, go on, top man. So I had this, this channel overnight and I was adding stuff and the more stuff I was adding to this scene of, let us say, Superman saving Lois from being run over by a bus or whatever, you know. Mm. The whole point of doing the superhero stuff just was only because I got into the light entertainment with a program idea based on uh, Superman's 50th birthday. It wasn't actually where I thought I was going. I thought I'd be doing Finding the Next Round the Horn or something like that. But anyway, we are where we are. Um, Mm. So we were doing the Superman thing, and I was doing, I think, this sounds like a film soundtrack. This sounds, you know, quite... What happens if I had a kind of, oh, I could have more traffic in the background. Let's thicken up the gravy at the back there. And then, you know what? I need to hear the footsteps. I need to hear Superman land and then walk over to Lois and say, excuse me, Lois, or whatever it is. And in the end, from a single slice of pastry, it becomes a milfoy, you know, <laughs> of, of of all these different sound effects. Yeah. And, and then and it's about three in the morning and I played back this, like, two-minute scene that had taken me five hours to do. (laughs) And I thought, that sounds fantastic. Mm. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life, aren't I? (laughs) I'm going to be listening to stuff till my brain runs out of my ears. (laughs) And it's not like they were giving you a 30-track studio to work with. No. That was stereo. That was just bouncing. You know, it's a bit like... uh, when Brian May talks about Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, you could almost see through the tape by the end of it. Yeah, it had been run past so many times. But you said earlier about the old technology. We were talking about, you know, the, the tape and stuff like that. Mm. And the thing about working in those days compared to these days is you had to make your decisions early in the process. You couldn't say, oh, I'll deal with it later in Pro Tools. Mm. You had to bloody well decide. So committing early meant, you know, you were past ever having to make that decision again because it was just baked in. Yeah. And I often feel, and this sounds a bit, if this comes out wrong, forgive me, because it's it's meant with all due humility, that mm. us working at the Beeb in those days was kind of like the Beatles working at Abbey Road in the 60s where the technology was limited, so we had to use our imaginations to get round things. Yes, 
And just adding another track wasn't an option because the surface noise, would, uh, the noise of the tape would be too much or whatever. And I just, I really appreciate the experience that gave us because that meant that, you know, we kind of are quick on our feet thinking. And I look at this, is, I've got to be careful how I say this because it sounds like I'm putting modern technology down and I'm not because it's no. brilliant. But at the same time, I see an awful lot of people relying on the technology to get them out of a, a sticky wicket. And actually, they needn't have got in there if they just spent a couple of more minutes thinking beforehand. Well, in a way, the technology of the time was forcing you to foresee those problems. Yes. So you didn't make those mistakes in the yes, first place. Yes, very yeah. good, very mm. good. But the downside of that is, being the age we are, Mike, <laughs> is that... It does make one so quick thinking sometimes one has to kind of back up to meet the people one's working with. Yeah, um, I, I'm not saying I'm always right. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm a good 10 yards ahead of where I think everyone else is on a job. And I yes. have to wander back and think, no, hang on, Durkey, pick up the traces here. That's, you know. <laughs> Particularly, I should imagine, when you're first trying to sell an idea to people. It's astonishing how long it took when you think between that phone call with Douglas oh. as your second thing. If you take that phone call and then actually getting to finally record Hitchhikers. 15 years, was it? 13 years later. 13 yeah. years. Yeah. It's sort My of slightly absurd, though, isn't it, that? Well, it is absurd. I mean, you know, it, it's also the vagaries of the publishing business where there was some kind of rights issue. I, don't, I mean, and that's not like Ed, Victor, his agent, not to have had that nailed down, but something wasn't right. And mm -hmm. we did have a script that didn't work. The, the tragedy was that at the point we would have done it in 92-3, Peter Jones was still alive, mm -hmm. Richard Vernon was still alive. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we had Simon. Susie obviously was still with us, but, you know, yeah. we, had the, we had everyone else. We could have had the the actual original cast of Hitchhikers, and it yeah, would have been yeah. a slightly different animal. But that yeah. said, um, and obviously you were there because you were in, you know, the mm. the last phases. We did do it, and and we managed to get Douglas in the room, of course, by having him his reading of one of the characters yeah. played in, you know, with Simon Jones fighting him at one point. It's amazing is, that what yeah, a moment. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I think of Douglas, every time I think of him, I think of him playing the guitar. Isn't that strange? Yes. I did go round and in a two-hour meeting, we would talk about hitchhikers for about 20 minutes and then we'd talk about guitars or drums or hi-fis. <laughs> that would be, you know, oh, have you seen my quad electrostatic speakers? You know, and all that stuff and off we'd go. Yeah. Yes. Well, what a wonderful thing to get that phone call. So we put that in as the second thing then. Yeah, yeah, we better do. Yeah, we better do. Yeah. Okay. So we've got to look for a third thing. Right, I hope you're having fun. We're pausing here for some adverts, but we'll be back with Dirk in a flash. See you very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else from his extraordinary life Dirk Maggs would like to put in his time capsule. I've got a third thing. Oh, great. Failures. <laughs> because, you know, nothing... It's, it's the stuff that didn't come off that really teaches you stuff. And sometimes when there's a disappointment, and, you know, there still are because we're, we're still in the biz and we still have ideas, you know. I mean, let's say my time capsule had bombed after number two. You'd go, okay, all right. Uh, yeah. Carry on. And forever after be telling people about it and they're all saying, well, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Go, I know it's a good idea. But... <laughs> yeah, you should have kept doing that. And you're going, yes, I bleed. Yeah, thanks no. very much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I was thinking that, you know, failure, failure is a very, very good thing because, you know, you do learn to to pick yourself up. And, um, and Leslie, you know, sometimes when things go wrong, she says to me, um, aren't you cross about that? And I said, well, if I get cross about that, it's going to ruin my evening. I'd just rather think of it as being in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's lovely because she gets cross on my behalf, and then I have to talk her out of it, by which time I've got cross about it all over again. <laughs> I had an agent who used to do that. Uh, it was a very good agent, and she always, when she rang up to say I hadn't got a job, would always say, I've got some really good news for you. And I'd say, yes, she said, there's an opportunity for you to get an even better job. Oh, that's good. Oh, I like your agent. Yes. Yeah. But no, but failure, you know, is is a good teacher. And I do remember when Hitchhikers, you see, it's it, it all, everything's like, a, <laughs> it's also tightly woven, you see, Mike. Um, but when Hitchhikers did actually get kiboshed and we couldn't do it, it was like about, right about 93. And this was before I had the gig on Loose Ends. And I really didn't know what I was going to do because I'd had fantastic three years on news headlines. Mm. which we'll come back to, and doing flywheels and doing the soup. I, I just had a fantastic... 1991 is actually going to go in to this time <laughs> capsule as a brilliant year. But it was 92, 93, everything had fallen apart, and I went home and I just walked in the house and I just kind of... I kind of stopped. Like, my, my clockwork had run down and my, my head hit the, the wall of the house and I just sat there communing silently with the breeze blocks um, behind the blaster, <laughs> you know, just thinking... I just don't know what to do now. I don't know what to do. And everybody has times like that. And it wasn't feeling sorry for myself. It was just genuinely, I had, you know, uh, you know, I had a family. We had just had a baby. We had another four-year-old. Mm. And it was, what the hell do we do? What do we yeah. do? 
But of course, stuff comes up, and that's yes. what I've learned over the years. Stuff does come up, but there were some funny failures at about the same time. Me thinking, "What the hell am I going to do?" The post of script editor in Radio Light Entertainment came up, which is the person who would read all the unsolicited scripts that fell on the mat at mm-hmm. Sixteen Langham Street. And uh, Jonathan James Moore, he'd just become head of department, took over from Martin Fisher, mm-hmm. so that the post was available. And there were two candidates for the job. One was me, because I had no idea on the planet what else to do. Not, <laughs> I didn't really want to read 500 scripts a week, but... No. <laughs> and the other one was Amando Yanucci, who was oh. one of my colleagues at the time. Mm. And the thing about me being a comedy producer is that I would have been an absolutely great comedy producer in between 1948 and 1968. I really reckon <laughs> those would be my key years. But, of course, we weren't there. You know, Armando's doing the day-to-day and there's the Mary Whitehouse experience. And I kind of think Radioactive that you did with with Phil and, and Jeffrey and Helen was kind of like and Angus. Yeah, was, don't forget Angus. He'll be furious. <laughs> Sorry, Angus. <laughs> um <laughs> After that, there was no innovative, gag-paced sketch comedy for me. You know, I would have loved to work on Radioactive. I hadn't the least interest in doing the day-to-day or on-the-hour or Mary Whitehouse experience. So you would have been a really good producer on Radioactive because you did like gags, and also we did a lot of music. Oh, with Philip, Mm. who's a genius. Yeah. So, absolutely. But there's a Munda going in, and I'm thinking... I don't stand a chance here. I mean, you know, Mundo's doing all this cutting edge. He's, the man's a genius. He's a, he's a genius. We did the interview. He got the job. And I was, I was moderately pissed off, but not in a serious way, because, you know, for crying out loud, the man's a genius. Of course he's mm. going to get the job. But maybe that's why the BBC went that way. Maybe he was then judging the scripts and he didn't like people coming straight in with a pun. There's a, cor- a, roller, a corollary to that, <laughs> which is that... About a week later, he resigned from the post <laughs> because he realised he was going to be reading all this terrible <laughs> It's a terrible job. I've all done these... it. Just sat reading these awful scripts and thinking, yeah. I've got to try and find something positive to say about this when I reject it. Yeah, especially when you're reading the ones written on the inside of a cereal packet in red crayon. <laughs> Those are the ones. <laughs> I had one written on a toilet roll. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting angle. Yeah. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, this could either be genius or terrible. And there was only one use for that toilet roll, I'm afraid. <laughs> Brilliant. But that was, a, that was a constructive failure. That was a constructive failure. But I also think with you, Dirk, that failure quite often shows you that a failure doesn't really matter. And that, I think, shows in your work. Quite often I'm amazed by the people you approach to be in it. Do you know what I mean? I know you do really top-end work now, but right from the beginning, you've always gone for the people that you would first choose. Although I, I've got to say, a bit like Blanche Dubois, it has depended a lot on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> so right. I listen to people, and I do let people do their jobs, Mike. So so if somebody suggests something, I take it seriously. That sounds a bit weird, but the thing is, generally speaking, if someone like James McAvoy has come aboard something we've done... Mm. It's been a suggestion from someone who knows that James would do that job. And, of course, this is another thing to put in the time capsule, which is the read-through for Neverwhere in 2012. Mm. I was working with a lovely producer called Heather Lama then. She'd actually finally sold the BBC on Neil Gaiman, and I'd spent 15 years 
20 years nearly trying. Mm. I started pitching Sandman in 1993, I think it was, with <laughs> Neil's permission. Oh, it only took 30 years. Overnight success, folks. <laughs> and Neil, being an absolute prince, said, well, could you get Dirk to do the adaptation? And then Heather rang, and then me, you know, never ever passing a chance up, said, well, look, can I co-direct it with you mm. if we do that and do the sound design? Heather said, yeah, okay. So... We did this read-through, and I was beavering away on these scripts, and I just I just had a feeling I had to really get this right. We were going to do Neil Gaiman. All these years of telling Radio 4 how good he was, mm. I know how to prove it. So I really gave it plenty. And then we went into the read-through, and I'd sort of seen the casting emails. You know, I was CC'd in on everything. But Heather had done all the work, and I'm sitting at this table in the basement of Broadcasting House where we're going to have the read-through. And next to me is Natalie Dormer, who's later a big star from Game of Thrones. Mm. Then there's James McAvoy. Then there's Sophie Ocanido. Then there's Benedict Cumberbatch. Then there's David Schofield. Then there's Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> then there's Andrew Sachs. Then there's Johnny Vegas. And then there is Sir Christopher Lee. Yes, who, if I remember correctly, was complaining of having a sore throat because he'd just come back from recording some heavy metal piece. That's exactly that. Yes, he was. <laughs> and then he'd tell you an anecdote about, I, I, did you know I attended the last public guillotining in France? <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary, man. About 1938, he was 16 or so. Decalage photo with this tiny, grainy black and white picture of a sea of heads going into the distance and in the very distance, a tiny black upright thing, which was a guillotine. So, God. yes, technically attended it, but in reality, it was a good half a mile away. <laughs> and I said to James, and I've told this before, so he won't mind. During coffee break, he said, oh, episode three, you know, Richard's a bit of a moaner, isn't he? A bit of a whinger. Can we change that? I said, yeah, we can change that, mate. Yeah, sure, you know, I'm, Neil won't mind. And I said, look, before we go, what, James, look, you, you're earning telephone number salary in L.A. doing Marvel stuff and whatever. Why are you doing this? He said, because I fucking love it. I fucking love Neil Gaiman. And it was just the most honest, lovely moment of just saying, I love this stuff. And you get the same reaction, of course, with Terry, with Terry Pratchett stuff. Yes. People yeah. do it because they love him. They absolutely do. I, I used to get in a real pickle about doing all that Superman stuff in light entertainment. I was doing this sort of comic book stuff, and I was thinking my father, who um, sadly died when I was 21, so I never saw him, and was a big radio comedy fan, and I wish to God three things. He could have met Les, he could have met our kids, and he could have seen me get to be a, a radio producer because he loved everything from Itmar all the way up to <laughs> Around the Horn. But the thing is, this is what I love. I thought Dad would say to me, oh, no, dear, oh, dear, David, you know, because my first name's David, it's David George Dirk. Dirk happened at school. I sort of think, what would Dad say? And then a few years later, I thought, well, Dad would be really pleased that you know, the script fees and the occasional royalty on CD or cassette sales has managed to feed the family when I was a freelancer, there was no work coming in. Either that or drumming has occasionally paid the grocery bill, you know. But but it's interesting, isn't it, within those productions, they were fantastically engaging because of the sound. Yeah. But within them, you always knew how to place a joke. Ah, well, now they used, I better come to putting 1991 in the time capsule. Okay. Because 1991 was kind of my 
epicenter of both learning my craft and being good enough to do it well. And I think that's a lot of that's got to do with working with Roy Hard and June Whitfield and Chris Emmett on the news headlines. Because although it was, um, as you know, modern satire in an end-of-the-peer humour milieu. It's really difficult to do that stuff. There was no question about these people's ability, but I I wasn't sure about some of it. Anyway, when I got into light entertainment, and basically as a rookie producer, you either got weekending or the news headlines. And I wanted headlines because I wanted a show with an audience. I thought that's going to be the acid test. You've got to make 300 people laugh on a Thursday lunchtime every week Mm. or your toast, which is weirdly masochistic because it really was quite hard work. (laughs) But um, I did about maybe four weeks on headlines and I thought I was doing a good job. And the setup was, for those who who don't remember it, it was a half-hour comedy show a week. We recorded it on the day it went out, and we recorded it on a Thursday lunchtime, and it was transmitted on BBC Radio 2 at 10.30 at night. So it was a pretty small window to to edit the show down and so on. So we, we, we started work on the Monday. We got in the sketches. We had a writer's room meeting on the Monday where we discussed what we put in the show. Delivery date was um, by Wednesday, 5 p.m. The script day was Wednesday furiously script editing stuff and that was where I'm learning my craft as a writer because you're Mm. learning how to time out the bombs stuff that you Mike as a performer are you know we worked together I think the first time in the studio on an above the title production with Johnny Vegas as the flump and there was you and Andy Taylor Jimmy Tarbuck yeah yeah and it was you and Andy Taylor as a sort of double act of sort of con artists yes and you were both you were both lifting stuff out of the script that you would never know was there. But because you've done <laughs> all the comedy you've done, you can tease out those veins of comedy gold. Well, going back, you know, sort of whatever it was, 10 years or so before that, that occasion when we worked together for the first time, mm-hmm. I'm in Radio Light Tent and I'm learning how scripts work and how you can reveal to the performer without making, you know, too many marks on the page, what they need to do to get the line. Um, mm. And also then it's going to go to Roy, June and Chris, who are masters at doing that. So we, we go to the, to, the, to the studio on the Thursday morning. We do the show Thursday lunchtime. And I'd done about four of these, but Roy came up. And Roy had very bad eyesight, as you remember. So he kind of came up to me, and he's about three inches from me. So, <laughs> You're right, Dirk. You know, so, <laughs> um, and he said, um, it's not working, is it? It's not working. And I said, oh, uh, isn't it? He said, no, no, no. It's funny. And I said, well, I thought I th- that's what I thought we were doing, you know, because the audience are laughing. He said, yeah, it's funny but there's no context. It's just the jokes. Uh You're taking all the stuff with the jokes, but you've lost the context of the gag. And the thing about the news headlines is, without the context, we're just a sketch show, without the satire. And Roy, being a true pro, knew exactly what he was doing, and I hadn't figured out what they were doing. I thought it was all about the gags because it was an end of the peer show with gags, but it wasn't. The satire was important because I realised that I was only doing half the job I was supposed to do. And so it was a matter of honour to me not mess this up because I didn't want to lose the job. I loved the job and we Mm. got on really well. It was fun to do. 
But it took, you know, I think it took a couple of weeks. And I keep saying that it was the, the week that Thatcher resigned. I went down to the Paris studio, lovely sunny morning, carrying my programme box, got down there and there's Oleg Stepaniuk, one of our writers, outside having a fag. Now, in those days, you could have a fag inside. So it was unusual. And I said, you're right, mm. mate. And he said, um, have you not heard? Thatcher had resigned. Mm. And I'd go down and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, two-thirds of the script is completely irrelevant now. So we just oh literally unpinned the script and we just kind of rewrote the show there and then. We had audience coming in in, what, hour and a half? Something like that. <laughs> but it was great because it, it focused the mind. And because I, he'd given me that, Macy, we need to sort this, it was a road to Damascus moment. I, yeah. and, and ever since then, you know, it can be funny, but it's got to have context. Absolutely. Me. You think back to the news headlines with June Whitfield's impersonation of Margaret Thatcher was oh, possibly the my best. Oh, God. She was amazing. But my favourite June thing was when we had the royal family and she played the Queen Mother as Irene Handel. <laughs> it brought the house down. Because our audience were a certain age. <laughs> well, yes, that Paris studio audience, particularly on a Thursday lunchtime. Yes. yes. What has 48 pairs of legs and one set of false teeth? The front row at the Paris... <laughs> Bless. Oh, yeah. I remember them very well. Yeah, happy days. When we first started doing Radioactive, there was a woman, there was one old woman used to come to every recording, sat right at the front and roared with laughter at everything, absolutely everything. And quite often we would, in the middle of recording, say, that wasn't one of the jokes. And then she'd <laughs> laugh at that. <laughs> well, that wasn't the famous Hetty, was it? It was Hetty, yeah. Hetty, who had to be banned for laughing in all the wrong places. Oh, I tell you what, there were some weeks we could have done with Hetty. <laughs> I bet, yeah. I remember I was so desperate one week, I went out in a tutu and suspenders. <laughs> I'm not proud, Mike, but let's face it, you've got to do what you've got to do for the job. Yeah, well, you have all the way along. Yeah. Now, I mean, we're, normally we would put something into the time capsule you want to put in there because you'd like to forget it. Yeah, well, you know what I'd like to forget. Mm. That would be the end of the second tour of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show. I mean, it's it's something that I would put, I, I have to put in the time capsule, but I don't really want to talk about a lot except to say that I was very proud of that show. We actually managed to do on stage what in 1978 Jeffrey and Douglas couldn't do, mm. which is literally do the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in that moment. And most of it was live on stage. There were yeah. a few played in sound effects, but most of it was performed live on stage with either the band or a sound effects technician or the cast. And we had a bit of choreography going on. There was We had a Marvin puppet, which was built out of bits of old tape recorders and radios and so on. Um, and and it, was, it was such a good idea that was actually bankrupted by spending on all the wrong things, like a huge set that we really didn't need. No. There were so many bad decisions made that we could not have any power over. And the thing about it was that it just kept getting better and better and better. Much Jeff Jeff used to get very cross with me because I rewrote on the road. I would I would think, <laughs> now that we could do, you know what, this thing of Douglas's would be better than that and so on. Yeah. There were some bits we had to keep, like, you know, whales falling out of the flies and things like yes, that, quite, you know, the, yeah. the, the whale gag. And, of course, it was the last time I was able to work with Stephen, lovely Stephen Moore, when he was, um, you know, fully fit to work. 
but he couldn't actually do the show. He's a bit like you. He was playing Mr. Brownlow or one of the characters in Oliver. Um, so he couldn't do it. So, and, and uh, I was thinking, God almighty, with no Stephen for Marvin, we're sunk. But then I suddenly, uh, we were on the, in the queue for the ferry <laughs> and I rang him from Dover. And I said, Stephen, I know what we can do. You record it and we'll get a puppet. And do it with a puppet. <laughs> of course. Uh, and he did. And he came around to, he was in doing Oliver in Southampton. So I picked him up, came back here to the house, recorded him here doing the lines, and then, you know, took him back for his matinee. Fabulous. Um, and we did it. And it was. He it was, was such a modest man, wasn't he, Steve? Uh, he was a totally, he was, I dropped him off and he looked like he'd rather be anywhere else than on the avenue in Southampton going for an av- a matinee of Oliver. Mm. I think he sort of thought, oh, I'd rather love, love to go on the road with the old gang. And it was a it was a lot of fun, but yeah. it crashed and burned. Second tour crashed and burned um, when the producers jumped ship rather than help seal off the leaks. What extraordinary people you had working on it, though. Oh, How it, fabulous. Uh, and also the number of people who came in and actually played the book. That's a, well, that was a good idea and a bad idea. Ah, right. I was always sorry we didn't get you. But, <laughs> you know, we, we had some wonderful books and, and some really unexpectedly brilliant ones, like Anita Dobson. Anita Dobson was one of the best of all the books. Well, she is a really good actress, Anita. She's bloody good. But, you know, Miriam Margulies, John Chalice, God bless him. Mm. Billy Boyd, who was our very first voice of the book because we were playing Glasgow. <laughs> and luckily, he was in the country. So Billy came and did Glasgow. Clive Anderson, um, Hugh Dennis. John, John. John Lloyd. John Lloyd. Oh, my God. Mm. Absol- well, you know, John, you don't get much closer to the mother load than that, do you, no, frankly? No, not really, no. And, and there's another very self-effacing human being. Yeah. For someone who's done all that he's done, it's astonishing to me. He's, I mean, he's some kind of genius. I, I was going to tell you a Leslie Nielsen story. Okay, do. Because this goes with the failure thing. I, I finished, I've just finished talking about Hitchhikers because... I'm proud of that show, and it was mm. a lovely time to the point where it wasn't. And then yes. it was so not a, a good time, it actually put me in hospital. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, uh, not, not with a nervous thing either. It was the stress that actually physically uh, affected me so badly. Well, also, you're absolutely the sort of person who would feel the pain of letting uh, people down. To, so. Oh, well, I, I won't call my wife in because she will tell you what an mm. absolute pain in the bum I am, perfection-wise. But um, <laughs> talking about John reminds me of something Leslie Nielsen said to me. And one of the things I love about my time capsule is that people sort of share information that can be helpful for all of us. And in 1994, I was still in Radio Light Entertainment, and I got a phone call from a lady called June Purnell, who was working for some company publicising Leslie Nielsen's Bad Golf My Way. <laughs> to be shot in Toronto. And, you know, there are times when you sniff a freebie. But more than that, I sniffed an opportunity. And I thought, I wonder if we could get Leslie to come and do a show in London with us, a, a radio show. And I couldn't think who to speak to. And then I thought of Stuart Silver, who used to write for Hardlines and stuff like that yeah. when I first joined. But by then was writing for Lee Evans. And Stuart is, is, is the most Spike Milligan writer I've ever met who isn't actually Spike. And I rang him and I said, if I could swing two tickets, this this thing offered two tickets to fly out to see Leslie and spend a few days on the golf course in Canada. <laughs> it's not going to cost the BBC and it might come back with a programme idea. So I rang Stuart and said, look, this is a setup. Do you fancy us going out there? Maybe we, we could, you know, we could do a few trailers for them for nothing and see if we can pitch something to Leslie. Well, 
we did. We flew to Canada and we went to this golf course and Leslie was just the nicest human being you ever met. He was a true pro, generous, stood his round in the bar at the end of the day. And we, mm. were, we were in the kind of production office knocking up little jokey one-minute trailers they could use to promote the movie. And Stuart came up with a wonderful... This is another failure story. Stuart came up with a script called The Leather-Bound Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> and it was the idea was that Leslie wasn't a straight actor turned to comedy, but all the years he'd ever been working was actually secretly a United Nations ambassador putting the world's troubles to rest. <laughs> and he, he actually kind of, you know, so you see him in his, in his leather-bound study and he'd be sitting in a wing chair, sort of masterpiece theatre saying, well, this week I've, you know, I can't do Leslie, but, you know, you can imagine <laughs> that, that lovely dark brown voice saying... And then I, there was the Vietnam uh, War. Yeah, 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 yeah. It could have been worse, yeah. And, I, <laughs> and then he'd take you on the tour of the Leslie Nielsen Institute and you just passed doors through which you saw things. There were people lowering the Turin shroud into a huge tank and then pulling it out clean and applauding. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's just mad. Anyway, the relationship with Leslie went on for uh, quite a while afterwards trying to make this happen and at one I, I did pitch it to everybody and at one point somebody very senior in the BBC said I don't actually believe you've got Leslie Nielsen so I got Leslie to ring him you know <laughs> because okay you have but we couldn't get it away and but Leslie was so patient but one year I was over in LA and dropped in to see him and we were chatting about just life, the universe and everything, really. But he said something to me, and I just, it was gr this was great advice for anyone kind of just starting out or who's not sure of themselves. And he said, you know, Dirk, um, I used to think I was a blackboard on which life would write the message. And it took me the longest time to realize it was me who should be doing the writing. <laughs> Brilliant. And it was very good because it was kind of like, you know, get off your ass, you know, do it. Yes, as you've demonstrated over and over again, you are in fact the chalk. Can I quote you? You can. Mike Fenton Stevens says I'm chalk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dirk, how lovely to see you. Thank you yeah. very much for doing this. It's really good of you. Thank you, Mike. It's been lovely. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Dirk Maggs. Do please subscribe to this podcast if you've had a pleasant time listening, and we really appreciate it when people take a second to click on five stars as a rating. For the more adventurous, there is sometimes the chance to write a full review so that others can find this podcast and enjoy it too. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to do that. Whilst they still exist, you might want to follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, <clears throat> Instagram and Facebook. We're both on there. My time capsule is, of course, nearly all about the podcast and I talk about it a lot too, as well as other things that are going on in my life. If there is anything going on in my life, feel free to follow me and say hello. I'm very friendly, I promise, unless you're a tosser, in which case I'll let you know, which you may or may not find A, amusing and B, useful. Feel free to tell me the same back, but in a nice way, please. The theme tune to my time capsule was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available to download or stream on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production, produced by John Fenton Stevens. 
Right, I won't keep you. I'm sure you have busy lives. I mean, there's a lot of good advice out there, such as whatever you do, always give 100%. Of course, I wouldn't recommend that if you're giving blood. And some people say that when you get that glass half full, half empty feeling, just add vodka. I'd agree with that. Personally, I always take the advice of A.A. Milne, who said, people say nothing is impossible. So try to do nothing every day. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.